Well, as um, Beth said earlier, uh, this is the first Sunday, first weekend in Lent. And it's a time in the church's calendar when we who are followers of Jesus gathered in congregations begin to prepare ourselves for Easter. And so there are a number of ways that people will observe Lent through things like, like fasting or acts of service, uh, stopping certain things like television or video games or whatever it is that you like to do that you're not going to do for a while. And, and for most of us, regardless of the expression, it is a time for self-awareness and examination. It's a time when we consider the, the brokenness of our lives before God, and then we turn in fresh ways to Him in prayer and worship and gratitude. However, for people like us, Lent is just a little bit countercultural, really, uh, because we live in a society that's based on personal rights. So giving up something that we believe we've got a right to have can be very challenging to us. Uh, I've been on a kind of diet thing for the last month and a half, and it's not over yet. And I'm really interested in reclaiming my right to eat anything that I want to eat, especially cheese. <laughs> um, but, you know, we do want to do the things that we want to do. We want to be able to eat what we want to eat, drink what we want to eat, do and watch whatever it is that we want to do because it's our right. So protecting my rights can become synonymous with my concept of freedom. And so giving things up voluntarily seems to be contrary to that way of looking at life. Well, I'm thinking that, that when the concept of human rights and freedom stand in opposition to oppression and tyranny, then that's a good thing. It's a good alternative. However, when our idea of personal rights get focused on power and fear and protective individualism, then it may be time for some reflection. Really, you know, for, for good or ill, we Americans, and if you've done any traveling overseas, you know that the way other people see us is a little different sometimes than the way we see us. But we are often known for our pragmatism. You know, we're known for our kind of rugged individualism, our, our self-sufficiency, you know. Somebody comes up with a great idea in Europe and we make it work faster and stronger here in, you know, Detroit or wherever. And, um, and so there can be some benefits to that. Uh, however, our sense of individualism, our sense of self-sufficiency are the things that make things like our scripture text that were read to morning, this morning very difficult for us. In the, in, the, in the Deuteronomy text, we hear instructions given to the ancient people of Israel. And these instructions are regarding how they are to present their offerings, their tithes, their first fruits back to God. So they are to approach the priest with these gifts. And when they approach the priest, they have to verbally rehearse the history of the people of Israel from their, their rescue from Egypt right up to the present day. They just retell their shared story. And it is a shared story, very likely not spoken out just one person at a time, which would take a really long time, but perhaps corporately, because it is a shared history. It was a shared history rather than simply a multiple of individual histories. And all of their lives were tethered to that shared story. And it was a history of God's work in, through, on behalf of his own people. And it was a story that was filled with rescue, signs and wonders, worship. We heard all of that in the text this morning. And the people's dependency on God was expressed then by gratitude, giving back to their Redeemer the first fruits that came from the ground that was granted to them by 
the hand of God. Now, this text in Deuteronomy, by my reckoning, sort of forms the logic for the, the account of the three temptations that Jesus endured when he was in his own spirit-led isolation. In each one, we're told that the devil comes to him. And the devil uses scripture to lure him into a plan of individual action. Now, we don't know clearly how these temptations manifested themselves. The story would have only come from Jesus, who would have, he was the only one there at the time. Um, whether they came as tormenting, conflicting thoughts that he was struggling with, whether there was an actual presence in transportation, we don't really know, to, you know, transportation to different spots where these things would happen. Uh, but what we do hear in Jesus' words are a description of a struggle between possible agendas. And so the, the three temptations become a kind of reversal of what we saw in Deuteronomy. Rather than expressions of dependency, gratitude, and worship, they are challenges to make something happen to engage in self-promotion through dramatic acts like ending hunger. Turn that bread to stone, he says. That wouldn't only take care of Jesus' hunger, but it would take care of the hunger of the masses if you could do that. You know, in, in a place like first century Palestine, there might be a shortage of bread, but there's never a shortage of rocks. Or, or the idea of usurping and overwhelming all earthly powers. And the devil throws this one out. Worship me, he says, and it'll all be yours. Or there's the dazzling of the crowds with these spectacular feats of daring. Jesus sees himself on the top of the temple. The devil says, throw yourself off, and you know what God says. He'll command his angels to come and rescue you. You know, the, the temptation to get things going, to, to rally the troops, to take charge, to make something happen, to embrace power at any cost was what was going on here. And Jesus probably knew that he could really do those things. But his response to the tempter also came from Scripture. And his choosing of the texts reflected the, the very deeply significant mission of God in the world. And his were responses that first of all called for dependency. One cannot live on bread alone, he says. And also of true worship. When the devil invites him to worship himself, Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And, and Jesus resisted the, the temptation to spectacles of power. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In the face of those temptations, Jesus reminded himself who he really was and in whom he found his identity. You know, those three temptations, if you look closely at them, really were three possible doorways leading into one big temptation. The temptation to exit God's story and then embrace an alternative narrative that maintained religious trappings but was actually a story of individual power. It's kind of revealing when you note that as the devil quotes Psalm 91, claiming that God will command his angels concerning you to protect you he very conveniently leaves out the preceding text which says, because you have made the Lord your God your refuge, the most high, your dwelling place. Now this actually might be part of the problem that the Apostle Paul was addressing to his friends in Rome. Uh, some of them appeared to have wanted to have reverted back, back to the old days when, when you could quantify your righteousness by keeping the law. 
I mean, it's great to have Jesus, but we need this law thing going too because that's the thing you can measure. You know, it's, it's hard to quantify things that you just can't put a measurement on. But keeping the, the law, you can, you can quantify that. But Paul reminds them that they can't simply own such a qualifier as if it's property and then assume that they hold the power of righteousness in their own hands. He says that this salvation is one of faith and it comes from the heart of God. You know, the temptations that came to Jesus while he resisted them successfully uh, were ones that others might have embraced. I imagine King Herod would find this a very attractive possibility for himself. Uh, certainly not one to shy away from ill-gotten power or airbrushing his enemies right out of history. Or maybe some of the local religious leaders who felt it was their role in life to keep their dominant story in place, keep the status quo under control. And I think even some of Jesus' closest followers might have found the idea of, of a kind of explosive, spectacular power to be attractive. I, I mean, three years of just wandering around while Jesus does his stuff might have gotten a little slow for them. Maybe getting things going would be an, an, an attractive alternative. But Jesus didn't cave into any of that. When the temptations came to Jesus, they didn't come to him in a vacuum. They came into a life that already had an identity. It was an identity that was grounded in God and in God's purposes. Now, Matthew has an account of this story as well. And in his story, when Jesus leaves that spirit-led isolation time, uh, he immediately engages with the larger community. He doesn't stay isolated. He comes back into his world. And he not only teaches in the local synagogues, but he also calls his disciples for the first time to come and follow him. For Jesus, his life and ministry was not to be expressed in the grasping of personal power, but rather in a life that was given to others. And the power that he had was a power that was to be given away. It was a power for the sake of others. And ultimately, it was a power for the sake of the world. As I mentioned earlier, we, uh, we do, if we're honest with ourselves, live in a society that's grounded and finds its basis and, and identity in personal rights. We hear a lot about rights these days. We hear a lot about the joys of ownership, whether that ownership is focused on guns, real estate, or cars, or whatever treasure we hold dear. Um, ownership really does suggest a kind of power, doesn't it? It's the power to control, to protect, to enjoy, to give away, or even to withhold and keep isolated. Now, many of us do enjoy some level of the power of ownership. That's just how it works in our society. This is where we live. This is our context. And we do own some things. We own homes. We own cars. We own the shoes on our feet. And we're not necessarily fearful that someone's going to bang on our door in the middle of the night and haul it all away. Uh, we figure we get to keep our stuff and use it. And it helps us to do the life that we have in our context. So there might be some benefits to all of that, both social and economics, um, in, that's found in that form of personal power. However, it's not the way that we are formed in the way of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul told his Philippian friends when they might have been struggling as we often struggle with an identity that is countercultural, he said to his Philippian friends, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, as followers of Jesus, we don't wake up in the morning wearing the identity of the power of ownership or control. As followers of Jesus, we begin not as owners, but as receivers. Ones who recognize that anything that we have that brings us life and joy comes to us from the hand of God. And in that recognition, we can hold all that we have loosely, whether it's power, whether it's property, whether it's money, whether it's roles of ministry, whether it's titles. There's always going to be, however, a whisper in our ear that suggests we can find happiness in the pursuit of any number of things that will ultimately draw us away from God. Uh, a few years ago, uh, my wife Emily and I celebrated our wedding anniversary by taking a trip to a place we'd never been before, Las Vegas. Now, I've lived in Southern California my entire life. I have no interest in Las Vegas whatsoever. I don't care about gambling. I don't care about any of that stuff. Uh, we stopped there once to get gasoline on our way to somewhere else. So I'd never even been to the Strip until this time, this wedding anniversary. And um, the reason we went there was not for any other reason except to see the Cirque du Soleil show, Beatles Love, which was awesome. <clears throat> and uh, our anniversary is in December, so we got there. It was, had the Christmassy thing going, you know, Las Vegas style. Uh, before we went, somebody told us, you know, when you go to the Strip, it's going to be like Disneyland on steroids. And I got there and I said, no, it's like Disneyland on LSD. Uh, that's just me. If you hey, if you like Las Vegas, you know, God bless you. Um, so anyway, went to the show, had a wonderful dinner, and then the next morning, we just were going up for the night, driving back again the next morning. Uh, we went and had breakfast and had to go through the hotel. You, you, you can't go anywhere in the big hotels without going through some aspect of a casino. That's just how it is. And uh, there was a, over by where the show was, there was a little store where they sold, you know, beetle stuff for about 10 times the worth of the things. So we didn't buy anything. But as we were leaving that, heading back to check out, we're wandering on this winding carpeted pathway that takes you through the casino. Now it's nine o'clock in the morning. And the gamblers are already there. The lights are flashing. The bongers are bonging, you know, on the slot machines. The tokens are dropping, all of those types of things. And as we strolled through there, um, there was music on the hotel speakers. Now, this was not exactly unusual for our trip because there'd been music playing the whole time we'd been there. And, uh, and it was a kind of, you know, culturally correct stuff that you would expect in a place like that. Uh, you know, kind of fun, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer sort of things, but nothing that really had anything to do with Christmas. And, um, and as I was there, I was, I was taking in all the images. You know, sometimes you do that. Sometimes you kind of stop and look around and think, what's going on in this space that I'm inhabiting? And there's folks there, they, you know, they're already dropping the coins, just, you know, glazed over, staring at these machines. They've already got drinks at their elbow. They're, they got a day ahead of them, you know, to do the deal. And, uh, and I stopped, and I, I said to Emily, I said, hold on, listen, because the music had shifted. 
I wasn't hearing Mel Torme and Bing Crosby anymore. I heard a choir. And so that caught my attention and I stopped and I had to kind of push the other casino noise out of my brain and listen to what was coming out of these speakers. And I finally began to make out the words. And the words that I heard were, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and wonders of his love. It was that great Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, The Lord is Come. And I've heard that song a million times in my life, but I heard it differently at that moment. It, it came into my ears with, with a boldness I had never heard before because it was a proclamation of the kingdom of God. And it wasn't coming from a small band of faithful pilgrims out on the street with you know, tambourines and money buckets. It was coming right there in the casino. The good news that God is king resonated throughout that building. Very likely, Emily and I were the only ones that were aware of it. And I stopped and I, I looked again at the floor of that casino and I thought, okay, there it is. This is the place where all the promises and the hopes come. You know, it's going to be your big deal. One of these times, you're going to drop that token and it's all going to be yours. And you're going to find happiness. It's the place, though, of broken promises. It's the place where dreams get shattered and mortgages lost at blackjack tables and what have you. When I began to hear this sound of the proclamation of the kingdom of God, I thought, that's where we find our identity. It's not out there. It's in the rule and reign of God. You know, there's a very refreshing freedom in finding our identity in Jesus, isn't there? You know, letting go of an identity that's grounded in personal rights and the claim to power frees us to let our lives rest in the love of God, to offer our lives as a service to Him and to the world that God loves. And as the psalmist spoke to us this morning, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In this Lenten season, let's ask God to remind all of us who we really are. Amen.